All right, welcome back to Strike Talk with Billy Ray and Todd Garner. Another week of not a lot, of, <laughs> not a lot of response from AMPTP, uh, but uh, a lot happening um, around town. I got a ton of feedback on the podcast. Um, really, you know, mostly positive of people grateful that we're doing this from kind of trying to be balanced and do it from all sides. I, I admit the. The one negative uh, that I've gotten back is is uh, we would love to have a real response from the AMPTP. If anybody would like to come on and discuss this with us, I would love that because it's hard because I feel like we're just sort of carrying the water from written responses and, and kind of anecdotal stuff. We haven't really had anyone sit down with us and talk. And, and you can see how valuable it is to have a guest like John Wells, who's just so knowledgeable and has such a deep bench of understanding of all sides of the issue. But again, he's, he's a writer. So would love to have a producer or maybe somebody from the producers guild uh, uh, wants to come on to sort of uh, walk us through some of the issues as, as they understand it. And we also have the DGA and the SAG um, negotiations beginning. And uh, that's going to present a, a, a whole host of other other issues and complications. But I think the one thing that everybody is really thinking about right now is the coming of AI. And, and so what have you been thinking about that, Billy? Uh, good morning. Um, I'll start with a question. If I were to ask you, what is the deadliest animal on earth? Which animal kills the most humans per year? What would your guess be? You'd likely guess a shark, right? Well, it's not a shark. Um, the answer is it's the mosquito the disease spreading mosquito. And it's not actually even close. As humans, we are surrounded by a lot of mosquitoes spreading little problems that turn out to be deadly. That's how I think of AI. Put aside your visions of Skynet for a moment, we'll, we'll get there. Just think about the tiny bites. And for me, that means accepting my own hubris. By that, I mean, when bank tellers started being replaced by ATMs years ago, I didn't complain, even though I knew that that meant people were gonna lose their jobs in the name of convenience and progress. When gas station attendants began to vanish, I paid at the pump uh, and adjusted pretty quickly. I see less checkout people at grocery stores and just started scanning my own groceries without complaints. These were all mosquito bites, I barely felt them, but they got us all sick unknowingly. They spread a disease and what they sucked out of us made them bigger stronger and smarter. We allowed it, we encouraged it, and now it's Skynet, and it wants to write one-hour dramas. We know that that's creepy. You talk to any parent of any middle schooler or high schooler, if the kid asks them, hey, is it okay if I use AI to write my history paper? The answer is an instant and unreserved no. No parent I know would ever allow AI to replace a sacred experience for their child. Even the CEOs that we're striking against would make the same decision as parents, as stewards of their children. Well, we're all stewards of this business and we have to protect it. Look around you, it's not just ATMs and gas stations and grocery stores anymore. The cameras on network news broadcasts are not manned by people any longer. AI is in the music business already. It's writing songs, it's writing rap songs. So think about that. 
rap, an art form whose entire value is that it's real, lived, earned. Now it's just commerce. AI is the ultimate expression of a Silicon Valley ethic called optimization, which is a, a term that I truly hate. It means maximum efficiency at minimum cost. Less humanity, more profit. So where will all this lead? Well, if left unchecked, the drive for optimization will lead to some of us being replaced by AI. Let's forget for a moment what the human cost of that will look like. You have the lost jobs, the destroyed families. Let's just put that aside. Let's again be stewards of the business and look at what that will do to our industry. Well, obviously the work won't be as good. The shows will all feel the same. The public will, of course, notice. Moviegoers and TV watchers will get bored with the poor product and they'll stop watching. Um, instead, they'll amuse their boredoms with TikTok and YouTube, two other mosquitoes that we allowed to engorge on, the, on us. And those two sites or others like them will become our storytelling hub. So no more Godfather, no more Wizard of Oz. Um, it'll just be 15 second clips of human folly. And do you know what the media companies will do then? Um, they'll just buy TikTok and YouTube or TikTok and YouTube will buy them and production will cease. Those are the stakes. Now, the antidote to AI is not ignoring AI. AI is not going away. The antidote to AI is community. Community is us at our best. Our need for it is deep, ancient, and primal. And of course, it's the one thing AI can't replicate or achieve. Community has saved this country during the Civil War and World Wars and the Depression. It helped us survive Trump, who was the ultimate mosquito, small, common, but able to spread a lot of disease. And community is what all strikes are about. It's a group of people trusting one another, risking for one another. It's a shared humanity. This strike is the ultimate expression of that. It matters because we matter. So I would ask you to remember this much. That trust, that shared faith, emboldened writers who came before us to win all the benefits that we now enjoy. Residuals, minimums, pension and health plans, jurisdiction over the internet, all of them were battles. All of them were victories. This one will be one too. Our industry actually depends on it. We're going to do what we always do. We're going to take on the sharks. We're going to swat away the mosquitoes and the business will win because of it. Um, that is that's my Howard Beale moment for the week. Todd? I mean, look, the, the, the thing about technology and, and, and also I would obviously include AI in that is the owners want to use AI to replace workers and the workers want to use AI as a software tool that should be under their control. That's Those are the two conflicts that, that are happening in AI. And we've been grappling with the consequences of machines <laughs> replacing people for thousands of years. And it doesn't necessarily always work out. It feels like you've talked about, Billy, how the wealth gap has increased and this trillions of dollars have moved into the 1%. And our next guest would definitely agree with that and say that technology has been pushing that for years. And so let's introduce Simon Johnson. Simon Johnson is the Roland A. Kurtz Professor of Entrepreneurship at the MIT Sloan School of Management, where he's also head of the Global Economics and Management Group, as well as being the chair of the Sloan Fellows MBA Program Committee. Simon is also co-founded and currently leads a popular global entrepreneurship lab course at MIT. Simon is co-author with John Gruber of the book, Jumpstarting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth and the American Dream, and is co-author with Darren A. Smoglu of the forthcoming book, Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. 
Over the past decade, Simon has published more than 300 high-profile pieces in the New York Times, Bloomberg, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and the list goes on and on. Welcome to the podcast, Simon Johnson. Nice to be with you. So as you just heard Billy say, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's so many different views of AI. Every, first of all, I think that just because of the huge technological jump between ChatGPT3 and ChatGPT4, it really in the last months for the lay person has been like, oh my God, what the hell is this? It feels like it just happened overnight. But in reality, AI has been something that's been work, worked on for decades. And it's just been this new jump and all these huge uh, corporations, you know, kind of shoving it down our throats that we're all like, oh God, here, here it is, it, it, it's Skynet. And depending on, on the article you read from one article saying, we need to shut down AI now or it's going to kill us all to on the far end of the other side is, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a cool device that we can all use to make ourselves more, more productive. Where, where do you fall on that spectrum? Well, uh, I, I think, Todd, that the writers <laughs> and the producers are fighting about the, the central issue of our time, which is who's going to control AI, number one, and that's what you just said. Is it with the employers, the studios, or is it with the writers? But I would say there's a second issue there, Todd, which is which way are these tools going to develop? So right now there's a fixation in the industry um, and, and this, you're right that AI has been on development for, for decades, but it's really taken off this current version in the past um, in the past ten years, and particularly in the past uh, three to four years. And but but it's all focused on what, what they call machine intelligence, but what you should translate as replacing people. Let's fire more workers. Our argument is the, well, there is another tradition in computer science and in tech thinking, which is focused on machine usefulness, which is more let's make humans more productive, more creative create more space for them to do whatever it is they want to do. And, and that uh, we, we're arguing in, in our book uh, needs a lot more emphasis. And, you know, I think the right of strike is obviously about a lot of issues and it's, I'm sure it's very tough for them, but I'm, I'm immensely grateful that they're highlighting this issue and, and having this fight because I think it's bringing a lot of clarity to the rest of us. And as long as individuals don't control the technology, there is the absolute fear that, as Billy said, we will continue this. And, and now we know that growth is always expon exponential in, in technology. So if the last three years have been a giant leap and the last three months have been a giant leap, we probably will see leaps weekly now. I mean, in terms of the exponential growth of, of AI, the question is, is it a bell curve or is it a, is it a graph that just keeps hockey sticking off, off into eternity and then it just kills, kills us all? And so how do we have the workers have control? And I don't just mean writers. I mean, everybody, what, what, it seems like a very daunting task. It, it's, it's super daunting because there are two companies, Microsoft working with OpenAI, that's I think that one company, and Google working with Anthropic. They, they have by far the, the big lead over the field. Everyone else is, is, an almost, is, is also around at this point. And, and these two companies are racing very hard. They're not being super careful. Uh, they're spending, you know, essentially unlimited amounts of money to do what? Well, to, to build these machine intelligence systems that replace people and, and replace them across, you know, all kinds of jobs, some of which we can we can see that coming, some of which we can't. And it's coming at us very fast. I, I'm not sure that I subscribe to the infinite uh, hockey stick to infinity, but it, that doesn't matter. I mean, what matters is jobs being destroyed right now and jobs being destroyed much faster than we currently create new tasks, new jobs for humans. So that either gives you unemployment or much lower wages for the people who are shunted through that transition or both. 
And it seems like that would be a regulatory issue to be able to solve that. Well, good luck regulating big tech, uh, Todd. I mean, there are some parts of our economy where regulation does work. There are some parts where we try to regulate. It's not very good, like finance. And there's other parts where we, we really don't regulate much at all. And the tech industry has carved out this essentially regulation-free space very effectively over the past um, two decades, but actually actually longer. Uh, and if you, want to, um, if you want to propose regulation, I can tell you that go into a conversation in Washington, someone says, <coughs> China, you know, behind their hand. <laughs> right. And, and right. then everyone stops talking about it. Yeah, because we'll stop and they'll keep going. That's the fear. That's the fear. Or oh, that's right. what that's what that's how we are made to fear. And so th there is an issue also that there's no federal law that protects data, right? And so AI is considered ones and zeros, which is considered facts, and there's no copyright protection. So I want to just do the AMPTP response, Billy, and then we'll talk about the creative process. Because what's fascinating about the AMPTP response is they're not saying, hey, you know, don't worry, we're not going to replace jobs. They're kind of putting it back on the writer saying, well, this is a creative issue. You guys, you guys shouldn't want this. So let me just read this and then we can discuss the WGA's position. And then Simon, you can kind of uh, work with us here. So on a artificial intelligence, the official response is we're creative companies and we value the work of creatives. The best stories are original, insightful, and often come from people's own experiences. AI raises hard, important, creative, and legal questions for everyone. For example, writers want to be able to use this technology as part of their creative process without changing how credits are determined, which is complicated given AI material can't be copyrighted. So it's something that requires a lot more discussion, which we've committed to doing. Also, it's important to note that the current WJ agreement already defines a writer in quotes to exclude any quote unquote, corporate or impersonal purveyor of literary material, meaning that only a person can be considered a writer and enjoy the terms and conditions of the basic agreement. For example, AI generated material would not be eligible for writing credit. So Billy, where, where do you come down on that response? And then, and then Simon, how does that jive with what you see happening in the tech world? Here's the problem with that response and, and where I think this is going in terms of the negotiation. I sell a series to a streamer. The streamer says, okay, before we greenlight season one, you're going to break season one. I say, okay, I need a room full of writers to break an entire season of television. And they say, you can have two. So I say, okay, I have a mini room for 10 weeks. And in those 10 weeks, I'm paying those writers scale. Um, that's all they're guaranteed in terms of their employment. We work hard. We break eight episodes. I turn that format into the network um, or the streamer. And the streamer says, okay, we're greenlighting your show now. Go ahead and make season one. What those writers have made thus far is scale for 10 weeks. Then they wait another 60 days to get the green light, at which point they're not making any more money. Of course, they're just sort of amortizing what they've made over 60 more days. And then the studio or streamer says, says okay, Billy, uh, go make your show. Um, we're going to have AI generate the scripts and you're going to rewrite all those scripts. Um, okay, so that means goodbye to my two writers who helped me sell the show and get the green light. They're gone. Um, they've made scale over 10 weeks, which they now have to make last over the rest of the year. They're just dropped back into the job pool. Um, and AI goes off and writes uh, uh, drafts of those eight scripts. Um, AI won't get any credit, right? Because I'm going to come in and rewrite AI. We're not going to put on AI scripts. The showrunner is going to come in and, and rewrite them. That's me. We have completely optimized um, in terms of how much money we're spending on my writing staff. Um, we've stayed by the letter of the law. We're not giving AI any credit 
on any scripts, because that's a big fat no-no. Um, we're going to work the showrunner into the ground, but we're going to get eight scripts by our showrunner. Um, so where's the problem? Well, the problem is, uh, aside from the fact that you've completely hosed my two writers, um, and on top of it now, instead of a room full of six writers working for 22 weeks or 40 weeks and contributing off of those earnings to the pension and health plan, um, you've got two writers for 10 weeks at scale and one showrunner who winds up getting paid less than scale because I'll be working um, endless numbers of weeks and they don't pay me for post because they don't think that editing is writing, which is insane. So that's uh, an, a, a huge gap. It's a lot less money being contributed to the pension and health plans of the Writers Guild, which will then vanish. We will have optimized and we will have crushed every human that came in contact with the show. So I can do that for a season. Sure, I've got energy. I'm ambitious as hell. Um, I'll work really hard to get my vision into that box for sure. Will the show be better as a result of um, all that optimization? Will the show be the best version of itself? No, that no way. Um, and when it's time next year to do it again, will I have tried? Will I have trained anybody on my staff to help me create the show and make it better, richer, deeper for season two? No. And if I do that again for two years, or I get to a third year and I do it again, eventually I'll just collapse because it's not possible to produce eight episodes of television that you're writing and supervising all by yourself um, because there's just too much to do, at least too much to do well. And when it's three seasons in and I say, hey, I need someone else to take over the show, I'm fried. There won't be anybody there to do it. There won't be a staff that I've trained. There won't be anyone, any writer that we've paid to write episodes and go off and produce them. And, and actually see them visualized and realized on a set. There won't be anyone who's gone through post. There won't be anyone who knows what a big difference it makes when you add score to it. And then when you mix it, which is writing as well, no one will have been inculcated in that way. And so there'll be no one to hand the show off to. So who pays the price for that? Well, ultimately the streamer does because the show will die. Um, and this to me is the result of just looking at quarterly earnings and not looking three years down the road. And again, I am a, a, a fervent capitalist, but this is maniacal capitalism. This is reckless capitalism. This is capitalism um, without any regard for um, its own future. And that's what makes it so dangerous. Um, Oddly, it's writers who are looking down the road 10 years, not the companies that we're working for. And Simon, in your book, you, I mean, this is not new to AI. You, you argue in your new book that this has been going on since, you know, <laughs> ancient times with the invention of the wheel or fire. I mean, all the, any new technology is generally not good for the workers. So how do you see this historically and, and, and what do you see as, as the path forward in, in this instance? Well, so new technologies can cut either way, I think, Todd. Sometimes they work out better for workers, sometimes it's worse. It depends on how much power the workers have. It also depends on whether there's ways the workers can control the technology. So, you know, I, I agree entirely with, you know, the plausibility of Billy's scenario. We're seeing this in other sectors like video games, where you, you get rid of the junior people, you have one or two senior people left, they may get more power, they may get more money or they may get worked into the ground, which is Billy's scenario. That actually seems quite realistic to me. Uh, now, what, one difference, of course, between what we're seeing now and what we saw in early textile factories is it was pretty hard for workers to break away and either compete with a 
you know, big textile factory from their own house or try and build their own textile factory because that was all about control of capital. In creative uh, industries and creative activities, yeah, there is, there is real potential for writers or other workers, the creatives, to uh, use the AI as they see fit as part of what they're doing to enhance uh, their capabilities and not, but that's under their control rather than being under the control or stipulated uh, stipulated by the studio. But we also think there's this deeper problem that the, the, the kinds of technology that would be most useful to, to Billy and other writers is not being developed because that's not the priority of the two currently tech titans. Uh, they are much more in line. They have their own application of maniacal capitalism. Uh, let me just state for the record, because I can already uh, hear Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, saying that I'm screaming about capitalism. Um, just so for the record, socialism is a failed ideology. In the last century, it was responsible for the deaths of, I don't know, 100 million people in the world. This is not about socialism. This is about putting guardrails on capitalism so that it doesn't devour itself. Because as we talked about last week, remember that number. Since 1980, $50 trillion in the U.S. economy has moved from the bottom 90% to the top 1%. Is that a good thing for us as a country? For, for the American community. Has that been a good thing for $50 trillion to move from 90% of us to 1% of us? That migration of wealth, which is so massive, has it created a better country, a happier country? Okay, here's another effort to use another means, in this case, AI, to make that top 1% that much richer. Yeah, and I would say that 90% of that 0.001% have technology in, as wind in their sails, right? They're either, they either own a technology company or in the case of these huge hedge funds, you know, they're micro trading. The, the, the technology is completely in their control. So Simon, what is the downside of giving the writers control over this technology at this point? Well, I don't think there's a downside from the point of view of, of, of productivity or creativity. I, I agree with what Billy has said and how he characterized it. I think this is another stage, as Billy has said a little bit earlier, of, of the uh, conflict between employers and, and workers. And the employers are seeking more of the surplus for themselves. Um, now, there is there is a tension in capitalism. I'm also a pro-capitalist person, by the way. Let's be, I want to be clear about that. But there is always this tension between sort of capitalism with guardrails and capitalism that becomes maniacal, that is, you know, excessively trying to squeeze the workers. And there was a big shift in thinking in this country more broadly in the 1980s about capitalism. Prior to that, capitalism or the way we ran the, the economy in the U.S. was much more um, you know, about consensus and, and much more about um, cooperation between managers and workers. It wasn't perfect. Sure, there were some strikes. But after 1980, it became much more conflictual. And, and people thought that shareholder capitalism involves squeezing workers as much as you can. It doesn't. And it doesn't have to be. It didn't in the past. It's, it's often very short-sighted. But it is, unfortunately, a prevailing ideology. And that's what you're up against, I think, in this case, too. So I don't know Peter Thiel. Um, I do know people who do know Peter Thiel. And my sense is that if you were to ask Peter Thiel, um, where is all this going and what is uh, optimal? Um, I think Peter Thiel, if he is consistent with things he has said in the past, would say that there should be like eight to 10 unbelievably rich people who you know move to somewhere like New Zealand or the Galapagos, wherever they want to go, and just control the world from a, from a business point of view. Um, 
In other words, I think that there are people who are so insanely rich that they have moved past the idea that countries matter. That in the same way Patty Shayefsky was writing about in Network, that the world has just become a business and that it's not about borders anymore or nations or ideologies or peoples. I think there are a group of people that are so goddamn rich that they think they're the countries now. And that because they're that rich, they're that smart, and they should be the ones who dictate how life actually functions, how it plays out on the planet Earth. Um, I think that's a pretty scary prospect. Um, And when I think about what we're actually fighting about in this, um, in this strike, and why I think it is part of a much larger picture about corporatization in America and the world, it makes me want to fight like my hair is on fire because this fight is about where are we going as a species? Are we going to get to a place where countries don't matter because businesses are so big that Google Google or Microsoft or Apple or Amazon can buy America? Do we want to do that? Is that where this is going? And as again, as a community, is that a good thing? Um, I think we're now at a place where we need to have a national conversation about that. Um, I think politics still matter. I think country still matters. Um, I know I am negotiating against people who disagree. Uh, time to have a conversation about that. Yeah, I mean, you look at these huge tech corporations like Google and Microsoft and and um, Meta, and it, it, they, it, the, the gleefulness of which they have been warned about AI and, and continue to sort of pat us on the head and say, oh, come on, you, you mere mortals, we know better than you. We're just teaching these machines to be really efficient um, is a little bit infuriating because we're seeing the evident, uh, evidence of it all around. But let, let me just say, to play devil's advocate for one second, I Again, and I, I got slammed for this in, in, in one of the comments of being just sort of a, a, an idealist and, and, and making kind of these optimistic claims, but I'll do it again. I don't see the downside to giving writers the guardrails in this instance to make better product because as Billy said, look, there's a lot been said about Mike White not wanting these writers' rooms, and and everybody and you 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 and and John Wells last week both said, look, come on, he you're going to benefit from from more brains in in the room. And I would say for a writer, you know, if you have writer's block, to be able to say use technology to go, hey, give me 500 options of getting out of this out of this plot situation, and then you can just sort of maybe it does maybe none of them work, but oh, it might inspire a, a new idea. The, the, it doesn't seem like that's a bad thing to make to make help the writer be more creative. But again, that is a, in service of making the product better. What I'm hearing in terms of when a company controls the technology, it's not necessarily to make it better; it's to make it more efficient. And look, progress is a funny thing; it only goes in one direction. But we, as human beings, collectively have in our history made decisions about progress that were actually protective of, of human beings, of the human race. Um, there's no question that nuclear weapons were progress. If you're in the business of killing people, nuclear weapons are a conceptual advance over anything that had existed before, but collectively as a species, as a, as a global community, we decided no, that level of progress we think is dangerous. 
So we're going to put guardrails around that. And we have. Um, yes, of course, there are still countries that are testing nukes off atolls in, in the Pacific. And I wish that wouldn't happen. But basically, as a people, we decided that that particular level of progress um, was not good. Why can't that be our guiding principle here? Um, and I would also like to spend a little bit of time in this conversation about whether or not AI could actually withstand judicial review. I'm not sure that it can. I think there are lots of copyright issues here that are just intrinsic to what AI is. And, you know, um, I know legal affairs and business affairs people at studios and holy hell, I can't imagine what they would have to deal with. Let's just say, for example, that you were writing a screenplay and you said, hey, AI, can you give this to me in the style of William Goldman or Alvin Sargent? Um, it could, of course, but by definition, it would have to read the screenplays of those writers. Um, and therefore, everything that it does is plagiarism. Um, it's stealing someone's style. Um, is plagiarism okay with us? And how is that going to be accounted for economically? Who's going to be reimbursed for that? Who is going to be the bean counter deciding what percentage of that goes back to the estate of William Goldman? I mean, just logistically, I don't get how it's going to work, um, forgetting ethically, Um how is it supposed to happen? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I have no idea. I'm not a lawyer, okay? I'm an economist. But I, I think uh, this is an absolutely essential issue um, because the way the AI works is exactly by, you know, taking as an input everything that's out there that humans have digitized, certainly, um, and making in some sort of um, predictive incremental change. But that... I think often amounts to something extremely close to plagiarism. And some of the existing versions of AI do not tell you accurately where they got the material. So sometimes they'll tell ChatGPT, for example, will tell you if it made it up completely, if you ask the right question. But a lot of times it's not clear. You'd have to do a lot of research to figure out where, where it got the stuff. And I think that is, yes, absolutely murky and happy to accept that that will be a, a, legal, a, legal, a legal quagmire. And Simon, when you're when you're you're a professor at MIT, especially in entrepreneurship, what, what are the next generation? What what are the, what are their attitudes about this technology? Look, the next generation is always excited, right, about the next thing because that empowers them and that gives them uh, knowledge and an edge relative to the people who are older than them. And I don't mean people who are old like me; the people who are five years or ten years older, right? If you're eighteen, you've got an edge now. Um, I, I think there's a you know, a lot of genuine interest in solving problems with AI, Todd. Actually, bring me the human problem. Let's think about why we haven't fixed it so far. And let's think about whether AI could help me. That's a, that's a totally reasonable uh, question. And then am I developing the right tools? What's the form of AI that would actually make a difference on medical imaging, for example? So let's have, you know, there's roughly speaking the same number of radiologists at Mass General, the, the Pride, what are the Pride, uh, Prides of Boston in terms of hospitals, same number of radiologists as in Kenya. Okay, so maybe we could get better radiology services to a lot of people in Kenya if there's some way to leverage the capabilities of the doctors there, using uh, doctors worldwide using AI, not firing doctors, but actually enhancing the, research, the, the reach of top level medical services, and then of course treatment and, and so on subsequently. So there's a lot of interest in that, and those those are really good human problems to solve. I think that what we get what we're getting from the corporate world is not that. What we're getting is oh. How do we use this like we use self-checkout kiosks in grocery stores, which tip the balance from uh, to, towards capital from, from labor? Uh, you fire a bunch of workers. Productivity of the remaining workers doesn't go up. You don't pay them high, higher wages. You annoy some of the customers probably, but they still keep shopping there. You don't sell a lot more groceries, if any. But the people who remain in the grocery store are more afraid of losing their jobs. 
So using AI to tilt the balance of power and not get productivity gains is that's what the owners of capital want. And, you know, I think that's a lot of times pretty short sighted. Um, so it doesn't doesn't help us socially. And, I, and, and it, what's interesting about all of the companies, I can't think of one that this that wouldn't apply to in, in, in our business. The, the AI is not just a writing issue. So like uh, Bob Iger talked about AI a bit and I can see enhancing the park experience with AI uh, in, in really interesting and, and in cool ways in terms of, you know, personalizing your, your visit to the park, et cetera, et cetera. You, and I would say that even just a pure streaming service, they're going to use AI to maximize their algorithms to feed you uh, more of what more efficiently what you want. And then the list goes on and on. Sony, I'm sure, is using AI in their productions of their technology and their their hardware. So it is a complicated issue for the for this for the these huge corporations too, because it's not just a writing issue. And do you think that in the kind of the whispering of the China way, do you think that if they gave the writers control of AI that they would then be a slippery slope to saying, well, wait a minute, you know, uh, we're park employees. We want control of AI also, or, hey, we're employees on the assembly line of this Sony, uh, you know, tape recorder. We want control of AI. Is that the issue or is it just they just blanket want control of of any new technology just so that they can use it as they wish? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I think they want blanket control and they want to be able to use it, you know, against workers without there being any recriminations or union contracts to, to, to worry about. It's an interesting question though, Todd, whether I, I don't think that that it's a slippery slope here at all. I do think there are many applications of AI which are you're not going to be able to stop. I mean, certainly there's many parts of the US economy have, have very weak uh, trade unions. Most of the private sector has very little trade unions. So you're not going to be able to stand in the way there. And I think that um, maybe the creative space, maybe the writers will set an example. Perhaps we'll see that um, some some other applications of that around other creative pieces, but it's, I'm not sure. It's, it's all in play right now. It, this is a really fundamental struggle that, that you're having over this issue. And, and the writers are at the forefront, I think, of trying to establish, you know, where do you want to draw the line between what have what you have humans do, what you allow the machines to do based on previous things humans do? How do you attribute to the, what the living and dead previous humans did? That's a really fascinating question. And the tech companies want nothing to do with this, right? They just want full speed ahead. We're charging down, down the street. We're not going to talk about those things. Fix them later if you want. Well, we never fix them, right? In the strike of 2007 uh, and 2008, and we mentioned this in a previous episode, but I think it bears repeating. The argument in 2007, 2008 was about who was going to um, cover the internet. And the studio's position was, what are we fighting about? The internet's not even a thing yet. Streaming isn't a thing. Um, let's give it three years and find out how robust it is and then negotiate the numbers then. And the writers knew that was folly. And so we dug in and we fought and we won jurisdiction over the internet, which is by far the most uh, quickly expanding growth sector of our business and the most rapidly expanding growth sector of the WGA. By that, I mean the WGA revenue pool. And by the way, as, as we mentioned before, the day that strike ended, Hulu opened for business that same day. So when I hear, hey, let's talk about this later when it becomes a reality, well, I, I think the AMPTP has earned our skepticism um, and our fear in terms of labor negotiations. Um, I don't have any inside information about it at all. I just have plenty of experience here. Um, so here's what I think is going to happen. Um, this is 
the way I would play it if I were Carol Lombardini. And again, I'm not talking to Carol Lombardini, but I've been in the room with her three times. Here's what I think is going to happen. I think the DGA is going to make a deal with the AMPTP as the DGA always does. And I think the AMPTP um, will look for places where the DGA deal can pattern to the WGA deal and, and where those patterns align. Um, there aren't many, but there are a few, but it, where those patterns align, I think the AMPTP will give gains to the DGA that are bigger than what they've offered the WGA. And then they'll be able to say, okay, we made a deal with the DGA and here are these places where we're, we're going to give more than we really want. We're going to strain, but we're going to do it. WGA, here you go. And that'll put a little pressure on the writers because it'll be announced publicly that the DGA has taken a deal that the writers have rejected. Then SAG will come in to make their deal. And SAG will be screaming about AI because SAG has more reasons to fear it than we do. Um, the problem with SAG historically, typically, is that they've always had so many holes in their pension and health plans, um, just keeping them funded. So in will step the AMPTP and they will shore up the pension and health plans of SAG and SAG will be grateful. And then when SAG says, yeah, but we got to talk about AI, the studio will, the um, AMPTP will say, oh, you're right. Hey, here's what we'll agree to. Um, we're going to have meaningful conversations with you about it. We hear you. Twice a year, we're going to set up a commission to talk about what AI is, what AI is doing. Um, and you'll be at that table. We want you there uh, as partners. Yeah, we're going to talk to you about this. We're going to be an open book about that. And because the pension and health plans uh, have been shored up, SAG will not be able to go on strike um, over AI. And so they will have to accept the deal. And now the AMPTP comes back to the community and says, look, the DGA agrees with us on the money. SAG agrees with us on the AI. Um, it's really the writers that are the problem. As we've told you, they're the children. And you can never give them enough. They're just insatiable. And that will be a moment that tests our resolve. Um, that's my fear. Um, now, again, I don't know that that's what Carol Lombardini is planning. And I don't know that Carol Lombardini um, has control of her room in terms of, of establishing any kind of plan. I'm just saying if I were Carol Lombardini, I would have orchestrated it in that way to place maximum pressure on the writers. And so far, that seems to be uh, how it's playing out. Well, let's talk about the, w, the, the DGA and SAG because they have very different issues. Now, again, I'm not in the DGA, I'm not in the WGA, and I'm not in the, I'm not in SAG. So, uh, okay, okay. So let me let me let me say from an outsider perspective, looking in the research I've done, and correct me if I'm wrong, both of you. So the DGA, the thing about AI for the DGA is they can use it to storyboard. They can use it for real engine to do, you know, stunts. They can do previs with real engine. They can use it for their pitches. There's, there's so many tools the DGA can use AI for that benefits their creative process. Are they going to have the same issue with controlling that technology? as the WJ and SAG, and I, this is a, this is a question for you, Simon, or, and, and again, you're not a lawyer, so maybe you don't know, but <clears throat> won't AI create for the actors a business of IP? Meaning if you're Tom Cruise, is Tom Cruise now not IP where he could theoretically AI scan himself 
at any age, because I believe Tom Hanks is doing a movie at Sony, which is AI generated where he's much younger, which is not the typical de-aging visual effect, but a true AI. Could he then not sell his IP? So like if you're an entrepreneurial producer that likes to gather up IP, could you not just go buy three Tom Cruise slots? And he wouldn't even have to show up. Could he monetize his IP from this AI? And if that is the case, is there any case where he wouldn't control his own likeness? And somebody could, like, could somebody who made a movie with Tom Cruise sell that likeness to another company? So that, that's a, a really deep, a really deep question. Again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not, and you need you need a very specialized kind of lawyer to answer this one. But but I think that I do think where we are uh, more broadly, and and this is, and Congress is beginning to think about this too, Todd. And I think getting these issues in front of Congress could be really well. I think it is important. Well, I mean, you have to do it, right? Because someone else would do it if you don't. I think if if it's just if it's an image of Tom Cruise, and and the AI is made by Tom Cruise and controlled by Tom Cruise, then then it's his property, and he's using that. And presumably he has to authorize when you put Tom Cruise on a um, when you put when you put Tom Cruise, on, you know, into a movie poster or if I want to put Tom Cruise on the cover of my book, I'd have to get permission from the people who own the photo or the image. Right. The, the problem is going to be I could use this synthetic, not me, but somebody who's not scrupulous would, would could use this, the AI to do a synthetic Tom Cruise or Tom Cruise lookalike or something that is has whatever characteristics you think Tom Cruise um, has that appeals to to audiences, and that is is is, is not currently uh, protected. There's, there's, there are lawsuits between uh, the people who own photo images, for example, uh, like Getty Images. Um, they have lawsuits against some of these um, image generating image generating AI companies, saying you stole from our library to make your synthetic images, and now you're selling those without giving us remuneration. And they have a point. So I think that's where this is this is where this is going. So this a lot of it is about. What is human property? What can be properly protected under existing law? But you know what? We can change the law, Todd, so that people can't steal your image, can't train their algorithms on your data without your permission. So we've talked about this uh, on this podcast podcast before. Um, I think that this labor stoppage ultimately comes down to not the gap between the AMPTP and the writers, but actually the gap between the tech companies in the AMPTP and the legacy media companies. Um, in the AMPTP. That to me is where the actual fissure is, that the needs, the drives, the corporate goals of Apple, Amazon, and Netflix are widely divorced from the needs, drives, and corporate goals of Comcast, Disney, Fox, Warners, uh, and especially Sony. Um, So if we accept that there are fundamental differences between those three companies and the legacy companies, um, there is also a fundamental difference between those three companies and the legacy companies in terms of technology. Um, Those three companies are far more tech oriented. And of course, they're much more likely to be invested in and have faith in the technology of AI, uh, which the legacy media companies are trying to catch up with, but don't really understand. Um, They're trying to exploit it, but they don't completely know what it is or how it's all going to fit. Um, and if that's true, how the hell are all those companies in the AMPTP ever going to come to some sort of understanding about how to coexist with one another? What you say sounds entirely plausible. And we do know a lot about the visions of tech companies. And we wrote about that in our book. It, it, they're very public about it. And I think they, they see everything as data. Everything is their domain. I think they, they regard 
legacy media companies as something that they're going to exactly subsume or, or massively bypass. I, they don't see a difference for, between media and gaming, for example. For them, that's all data and that's all interactions with audiences. So why do you even draw a line? How they'll decide among themselves how to negotiate, how to settle with you, I have no idea. But I, I think they want the, the, the tech companies, uh, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and I think Microsoft should be on that list, Billy. Um, and maybe Google too, actually. I'd be super surprised if Google isn't playing hard in this space. I mean, they, they're going to see, and I think you made this point earlier, they're going to see YouTube as, as a way to entirely bypass uh, legacy media companies one way, one way or another. So my fear then is, again, if we look at the quarterly earnings versus looking down the road three years argument, the legacy media companies, in effect, by looking at quarterly earnings, allowed Netflix to become a giant, gave Netflix all of their libraries, um, okay, ceded a lot of power. Uh, what if they do that here too? What if those legacy media companies, um, because they don't totally understand AI, seed leadership on this issue? to Netflix, Apple, and Amazon, none of which are being run at the moment um, by Louis Mayer or the Warner Brothers or Adolf Zucker or Carl Lemley. In other words, they're not being run by movie people. They're being run by tech people. And their faith is ultimately not in movies or television. Their faith is in the tech. So if they become the dominant voices in the room and the dominant voices in the room believe in and are invested in AI, okay, um, where does that lead you? Now, let me tell you, as someone who's gone through these negotiations, um, I have been seated across the table from those legacy media companies, um, from Comcast, from uh, Warners, from Disney, from then Fox, um, from Sony, from Viacom, etc. cetera. Um, it's not like I was crazy about them when they were the people I was negotiating against or we collectively were negotiating against. They were really tough really tough and they were squeezing us too but there was a basic understanding among the legacy media companies that writers had to exist that the pension plan had to exist that the health plan had to exist and that a career as a writer had to be sustainable um, because they understood that what mattered was the product not tech the product and they knew ultimately in their heart of hearts at three in the morning that they needed writers to create what had made them all so rich. I'm not sure that dynamic exists anymore if the three tech companies run the room. So I don't want to feed your paranoia, Billy. <laughs> I don't want to give you worst nightmares you already have, but you got to consider consider this one. Yes, right. So the worst, so if I were, if I were advising the tech companies, which I'm not, I would say to them, give the writers a lot of money and get them to agree that you, the tech companies, can control the AI and do what you want, right? So they could pay you a lot of money, because they're going to own the whole thing if they can do whatever they want with AI. They won't need writers in five or 10 years, right? That's how they'll think about it. But they're willing to buy you off. They're willing to pay you. They'll, you know, they'll, they'll feel good about it. They'll feel better about that. Uh, that's the way they, they, kind of, they, they see the world. And I think them controlling the technology versus you controlling the technology and having to agree to how it's used, that is what this is absolutely all about. And that's the next, it's got to be the next 10, 20, 30 years of employment and good jobs or not good jobs. I also think, um, having read that room a lot, if they do come back with a deal that gives writers lots of protections and more money on the other issues, on span, on mini room, what have you, if they have given in on those levels and they don't give in on AI, um, I think it would be very, very difficult to hold this strike together. 
Um, so from a strategic and tactical point of view, yeah, that would be the play. And if that is the play, then that should tell us that this whole thing was about AI all along from the company's point of view. That's, I'm sure that's what the tech giants want, uh, Billy. And I'm, sh I'm sure that's the lens through which they see it. I don't know about the legacy companies. I don't know about the dynamic between them. Um, and I think I'm, I'm really glad, Todd, that none of them listen to this podcast because I think Billy just laid out oh. the negotiation strategy. <laughs> no, they do. They do. But uh, Simon, what, what would be the, just uh, the kind of moving a little deeper down that road? What would be your answer <clears throat> if I was an AMPTP negotiator and negotiating with the writers and I said, guys, come on, uh, AI cannot write Jerry Maguire. You, this is this is all just a a, 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 bu a bunch of stuff about nothing. The AI is only going to help you. It's only going to be able to, you know, correct what you've done, kind of generate shitty outlines, uh, generic screenplays. You, 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 there's no way AI can create uh, Pulp Fiction or, or Jerry Maguire or something like that. This is ridiculous. Let's 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 move off this topic. What would be your response to that? You're right. AI cannot write Jerry Maguire, but AI can write a first draft of Jerry Maguire. There's no question about that. Uh, it's already capable of that. You feed it Cameron Crowe's style um, and you tell it a basic story. And then AI generates a first draft, which would not be good. It would not be human, uh, but it would be serviceable. It would, it would be uh, functional. And then you hire some young writer out of NYU um, that can make it human, make it feel human. Um, and, and you pay that writer scale to turn it into a screenplay. Um, and so far what you've spent is scale. Um, and you have something close to a movie. And then unless I'm completely wrong, then you bring in somebody who's made 25 movies who you have to pay you know, some actual money to. And that person comes in and does a two week polish. So you've paid you know, two weeks at their weekly rate and that's your total writer spend. Um, that's maximum efficiency. That's optimization. That's how you would use AI, give it no credit. And at the end of the day, you'd say, hey, AI was just a tool. AI didn't replace anybody. But that is, of course, um, spectacularly disingenuous and will wind up destroying the guild and then the business. But also, let, let, me, just, let me just also make another point as you, as you were talking. Look, this is not technology that, that this is, this, especially the open AI this is not just something that the, the studios own. If, if I'm somebody that's taking Simon's class at, at MIT and I'm like a not a super talented writer, I could also use that AI. I could also say, hey, generate me something that's kind of in this jazzy style of Cameron Crowe meets uh, Quentin Tarantino meets Elaine May, do a little polish on it and turn it in as a spec. So if I'm like this young 22-year-old kid you know, which, which is like most of the startups were started. If you look back at like Bezos and Gates and jobs, they were these 20 year olds. Are they not going to say, no, 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 Billy, you have this totally wrong, man. This is the best. Now anybody can be Cameron Crowe. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, uh, young people look at what other people have done before them. They try to come up with their own mix and match. Uh, a lot of times it is fairly incremental, but sometimes they hit a big home run. I, I you know, I think that's going to happen, Todd, whether we like it or not. I think that's different from the issue you're discussing with Billy, which is about power in the organized movie production, and particularly what can an employer or the people with capital do 
relative to the creatives, the people who, who do the writing. How the writers do the writing and where the writers draw their inspiration and you know, which books they read and, and how they process that, whether they use a pocket calculator or some other, uh, other ways that we, we expand our human abilities, I, I think that is up to them largely. And, and we actually want to push for more tools to be developed I mean, I don't think I'm not particularly worried about writers. I think they're getting on. The writers are very creative already. But other people, lower wage people um, with less education, helping make them more productive. Those tools are not being developed right now, Todd. And that, that's a massive missing piece for our economy. And it's a big driver for why we don't get to close the income inequality gap anytime soon. Meanwhile, it's important to note that the audience doesn't actually want this. They may have it shoved down their throats and they may actually have to wind up accepting it, but they don't want it. Uh, a friend of mine is the, the president of the International Thrillers Writers Association, and they spent some money and did an actual poll. And what they found was that 93.5% of book readers would not read a book written by AI. And 97.5% of book readers stated that if any portion of a book was written by AI, they would want that disclosed on the cover of the book. Um, this is not something people out there feel good about it. I uh, feel good about it. It's not something they want. Um, I cannot imagine that there would ever be a movie poster that has in the writing credits, you know, a caveat that says, Oh, you should know AI wrote some of this. Hope that's cool. Um, I, I don't see that. I don't see studios agreeing to that. So we're going to do all we can to hold the line and make sure that this isn't our immediate future um, because it's bad for uh, the, the town, which is a community. And the Writers Guild has always been a part of and a defender of that community. Well, Simon, thank you so much for your time. We know that we know you're on a very tight schedule. So just in the last minute or two, <clears throat> if you could be in total control of this, what would you say is the best solution for the next decade in terms of where this is headed and how to deal with it. Well, I think from the writer's perspective, we've, we've covered it, Todd, which is you, the writers need to have a say over how AI is used and, and they need to, I think, win pretty big. I mean, I, to the extent I understand the, the, the demands or, or the requests on the writer's side, I would go for it all. I, I think if you start to let the studios and, and the tech companies chip away at it, because this technology is moving so fast. In fact, you know, this conversation about what AI could write and not write is true today, but I don't know what it's going to be like next week or what the next release of, of GPT will, will bring. Um, so I think you need to, I think you need to get it all. And that's always very hard, right? In any negotiation or, or confrontation, when you really need to win everything, that makes it much more difficult. And I appreciate that. And I feel bad that I'm saying this to you, Todd and Billy, but I do think this is a, very tough situation that, that you're in. And, and, and I'm, I'm grateful to the writers for articulating, I'm grateful for you on this podcast as well, for articulating exactly what are the issues and what are the fears. Because there's a lot of other people in the economy who are just already getting sideswiped by this and they have, they can't articulate, they don't know what happened to them. You know, where do they get their explanation? Who tells their story? I think that that, that all remains to be seen. Remember, once again, what a strike is. A strike is an expression of community. And a community is an enormously powerful thing. Um, that trust that everyone is placing in one another on those picket lines and the trust that everyone around them is placing on them. It's an extremely moving thing. Um, let me share, you, share with you a contrast of that, which is a text uh, that I got yesterday. Uh, here's what it said uh, from a friend of mine uh, who said, quote, 
So I was told by a crew member on Daredevil that that production sent out a decoy call sheet and then called everyone and told them a different call time uh, before that so that the production could avoid picket lines. Uh, The same thing was done on American Horror Story on Friday. And a friend of mine was offered a flight to the UK to finish writing a show and the producers uh, offered to separately Venmo him, end quote. Okay, so uh, AI is not making those decisions. People are making those decisions. Again, I'm not talking about some tiny indie movie um, that's being made on a shoestring uh, that is not going to profit uh, the companies that we're striking against. I'm talking about big studio stuff, studio shows, network and streamer shows on which real money is being spent. Um, These are the people that we are trying to bring back to the table. You cannot bring them back to the table if they're not feeling the pain of the strike. We're going to wrap it up now. Please join us next week when our guests will be Irving Thalberg and Woody Guthrie. (laughs) And Billy, you're still striking. Uh, Thank you, Todd. I think you're striking too. Also a big shout out and a thank you to our producer, Benjamin Bloom.